Hello, it's Fangraphs Audio. I'm Carson Sestouli. Last week, uh, Kylie McDaniel was a guest on Fangraphs Audio. Kylie McDaniel, of course, is the new prospect writer, the lead prospect writer, the new lead prospect writer for Fangraphs. Instead of Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, Kylie requested that I play a lightly edited version of Jay-Z's public service announcement uh, to begin that edition of Fangraphs Audio. To begin this edition of Fangraphs Audio, also featuring... Uh, lead prospect writer Kylie McDaniel. He has requested that I play this sound effect. <laughs> Appears to be some manner of reggaeton horn. I will play it again, and then our conversation of yesterday, uh, Friday afternoon, will begin. Not before, however, not before I announce that I continue to think that Kylie McDaniel is a silly person and that this reggaeton horn is equally silly. Uh, having said that, allow me now to... Once again, play that noise, that reggaeton horn noise, and commence the conversation that I have with Kylie regarding all prospects. I am doing it. I just Okay, excellent. Yeah, I was just finishing up a phone call, uh, but now, but now we can have our discussion. Now we're going to do our discussion. Were you talking to a? Was it a VIP situation or was it like a friend? Uh, it was one of our prospect writers had a quick question, and I was like, uh, oh, I can take this. And as I picked it up and said two words, uh, your Skype popped up, and I was like, I'm going to have to make this a short conversation because I don't want to keep Carson waiting. Yeah, you don't want to do that. <laughs> you don't want to do that. <laughs> was that a threat? Is it thinly veiled, or would that be unveiled? No, no, no. I, I don't do – I can't do – I'm not capable of subtlety, so there's no thinly veiled. There's no – there's either veiled – no, there's no veil. There's no – there's zero veils. It's just uh, – you would know. You would know. But I'm, trying, I, I'm trying to seem imposing, so I'm going to eat a peach while you're talking, so all you can hear is the noise of me eating a piece of fruit. Okay. Go ahead. Imposing I, guys eat stuff while they wait for people to react to yeah, especially, especially sweet fruits. Yeah, it's like a cigarette or drink out of your coffee or you eat a sweet fruit. I was yeah. going to have a papaya, but it's a little unwieldy. It is, yes. They can get juicy. Hey, I have a question before, uh, before we uh, get deep into this, but I think it's also relevant. Um and I, it concerns uh, Mike Fires, right? Okay. Uh, Mike Fires, I don't know if you're aware of this or not. You spend a lot of time uh, thinking about um, minor leaguers and amateurs, etc. Um, Mike Fires has been stri- has been striking out a lot of players, a lot of uh, opposing batters. He's been basically the best pitcher over the past, whatever, like, I mean, over his last three starts or whatever time span that is. Yeah, I just pulled up his numbers. You're not kidding. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah, and if you look at his game logs, I mean, he had a 14-strikeout game the other day. I mean, 14 strikeouts, like, hitting that threshold is um, – it's just not something – like, it is in itself, like, demonstrative of a skill of some sort, right? I mean, it's a hard threshold to – like, certain – I think it's probably more likely that an, uh, a mediocre pitcher could throw a no-hitter than to record 14 strikeouts in a game. I'm – I, I think that's probably true. I don't know for a fact, but I think that's probably true. He struck out 14 of 22 batters, and it was against the Cubs, and it's a young Cubs team, and probably Javier Baez was three of those strikeouts himself. Um, but it's still a, a thing he did at the major league level. Um, but he throws. He also throws 89 miles per hour, and it's not and it's not much different than the fastball he's thrown for a while, basically for as long as he's been part of the consciousness, at least of people who know about major league baseball. And I guess I'm curious. From from your perspective, as someone who has uh, worked uh, within uh, within scouting departments in major league organizations, who's written about uh, prospects, 
but as written from from a scouting perspective, what what is something that Mike Fires could be doing that is uh, that is a thing that would allow him to strike out fourteen major league batters? Now we didn't discuss this topic beforehand, but the funny thing is, I have a very specific opinion about this exact kind of pitcher that I was bound to say on this podcast sometime in the next, like, six months, and it just happened to be this time. So I have two specific thoughts. The first one is, I would say because of his name, Mike Fires would be more well-suited to the bullpen so that they could say he's coming in to put out fires. Okay, yeah, very good. So So he's he's fighting against nature is what he's doing right now. Uh Yeah. The second part is, and this is something that uh, Nate still, I still remember, because I talked to a friend of the team about this, and I referenced a chat Nate Silver did when he was at Baseball Prospectus, which obviously was a while ago. Well, yeah, right. And he was saying that Pakoda, somebody was asking him about Andy Sonnenstein, because he had just come up and was like on some crazy streak. And people were asking, like, is this guy for real? And he was explaining that the Pakoda system, uh, and was sort of obviously anthropomorphizing the system and saying sort of like, I don't completely understand it, but it does X, Y, and Z with this sort of player. He was saying that Andy Sonnenstein, as a lower velocity uh, high fly ball guy, but that has enough command to have a good strikeout to walk rate, that those kinds of guys are typically the ones who put up crazy numbers, but that Pakoda and past examples show you those guys fall off a cliff once they regress a little bit. Now, if you update that a little bit, since then, I've explained that to a couple execs that have asked me actually questions like this, like, hey, what's going on with fires? And I was like, funny you mentioned that. And a couple mm-hmm. of them, I've, I found a link to that Nate Silver chat from way back when it sent it to him as sort of like, well, here's the proof of whatever. So I've been curious about this for a while, which is why I said it's interesting that you brought it up. So there is, if you were, uh, there was an article that I read, I want to say five years ago, that introduced this concept. And I've since, we talked about it with one of the teams I worked for. Uh, I've since uh, seen some writing. I think Dave Cameron noted about it a little bit. People have sort of been beating around the bush, but I don't feel like anyone has particularly come out and sort of explain this particular type of pitcher, which I'm looking at the numbers Mike Fires is, that kind of pitcher, and I'm speaking of a statistical profile, not a scouting profile. Um, so if a guy throws uh, a fastball that is not that fast, is a four-seamer without a lot of movement, throws it up in the zone, is a high fly ball guy, but has pretty good strikeout rate, pretty good walk rate, similar to the Sunstein, the Fires, that kind of guy. They also typically are not very big. Uh, those kinds of guys, uh, if you draw from the fly ball rate, will have high pop-up rates, which is essentially as good as a strikeout. Fly ball guys are more likely to get those. And so they're saying you get essentially sort of free strikeouts if you're an extreme fly ball guy, so long as you can survive. A great example of this is Koji Uehara. So here's where sort of the pitch FX angle comes into this. Right. So if, uh, if Koji is, uh, I don't know how tall is he, like 5'11 or something? Not that tall. Um, if he is pitching, uh, th- Imagine you're sitting in the first base dugout watching Koji pitch. Um, all right, I just picked, I just pulled up his uh, profile. Oh, it says he's 6'2". All right, so maybe he's that tall. I don't know. Uh, the point is, if you're a shorter pitcher, you're pitching up in the zone with a flat fastball, uh, the angle of where you're letting go of the ball to where the catcher is catching it will be much uh, flatter than if you are a sinker baller throwing down in the zone that's 6'7". Makes sense, correct? Sure, yeah. Uh there, if you think of it in those terms, sitting in the in the first base dugout watching these guys pitch, there is a typical angle that the ball comes from the pitcher toward the catcher that is, I believe, seven or eight degrees, which is a number you can extrapolate from the pitch effects data based on sort of release points and all that sort of thing. Uh, there is also a normal angle that the bat comes down at the ball, the uh, complementary angle, which is the average swing plane is also that six or seven degrees, or maybe it's eight or whatever it is. Uh, 
if you then take a guy who is incredibly tall, it'll make it a little steeper, which then makes it harder to hit. If you have a guy with like an extreme uppercut swing, he'll be, like, there's obviously exceptions to this, but the vast majority of players fall into that area. So what these short guys that uh, throw flat pitches up in the zone with just enough command to get by are doing is they're flattening it. And often, I remember I was uh, when I worked for Baltimore, I sat behind home plate and with some of the scouts and would watch Koji pitch, and it would be 88 miles an hour up in the zone, flat, and you'd see all these weird, awkward swings and pop-ups and stuff, and all the scouts are like, how is he doing this? Like, this is it deception? And they're, like, trying to, like, create an excuse. They're, like, he's succeeded for years doing this. Uh, there's like, you know, 80 innings or whatever, and it's like every single guy has the same reaction. It's not like, you know, fluky ball and play tendencies. How is this happening? And so this angle explanation says if most hitters are at that, say, you know, 6% or 7% or whatever the average is, and then Koji's throwing at like 3%, like super flat angle, and it's up in the zone where they're not used to hitting it, that's where you get the awkward swing because these guys are basically used to being able to swing the exact same way for almost every hitter, and then this guy's throwing it in a spot where they like the ball, but it's coming in at such a plane that they're trying to adjust their swing by a degree or two when they've swung thousands, I don't know, maybe hundreds of thousands of times in the same way, and and if there's a little deception and there's good command and there's also a splitter mixed in, then that makes it like a very hard to predict but almost equally as successful as, say, your traditional scouting guy like a Justin Verlander. You know, I'm glad, I'm glad you bring this up and it, because I remember uh, another sort of – with regard to fires and the fires to pitcher, an idea about those sorts that I was meditating on sort of unsuccessfully recently. And that is that maybe a frustration I have. I don't know if it's a frustration I have or just some, something I've recognized within the sort of the community of people who write about prospects. Um, there is a tendency, I think, maybe I, I don't think I'm being unfair. I just think I'm pointing something out, that if you have a pitcher with suboptimal velocity but who's also who also gets, you know, an average or above average number of swinging strikes via his fastball, then you have to, to, to whatever the degree of his success, that's how much then, then that much deception. That word is just sort of used as a as a blanket term at that point. What you're actually explaining is something. I mean, this could be I, deception could still be a thing. The way that the it, it enhances it, yes, right. But it, what you're saying is that. But do, I mean, do you do you agree that that deception is a term, or do you have examples maybe deception being used? As sort of a proxy for, I don't understand why this guy is, is so successful with um, this suboptimal fastball. Well, yeah, there's the that old uh, sabermetric uh, uh, saying that a uh, a player's defensive reputation, back before we had defensive metrics, is inversely proportionate to how good he hits for catchers. It's like, oh, he's in the lineup and he's hitting 220. This guy's got to be a great defensive catcher. And uh, I remember somebody told me when they were in uh, Britain, they were watching the BBC, and they were like. All these actors are so ugly. They must be great actors. <laughs> well, yes. it's the same thing. If there's a guy getting a bunch of awkward swings with stuff that barely gets him turned in as a prospect, uh, like Koji needed, what was it, like six or seven years in Japan of a track record where they're like, well, nobody can hit this guy, and he's kind of close to 90, and the splitter's an actual good pitch. So, yeah, I guess it'll work. And then he gets there, and they're like, I guess it's even better. Like, it's just the guy keeps beating expectations because he's not the uh, – uh, he's not the, uh, you know, the kind of guy you're looking for, but in much the same way that people say every soft tossing lefty with command is Tom Glavin, it's like one in 200 end up doing that. And what Koji's doing, if he loses a little command or starts throwing 85, it's probably not going to work either. So it's still a tightrope, but there's like a very specific tightrope where 
a certain guy, you know, some acrobat can walk on it and make it look easy, but he's still one in like, you know, a thousand or whatever it is that's still able to do it. And it might, and when he's 35, he might not be athletic enough to do it. But right now, it, you know, he's as effective as Justin Verlander doing something very unusual. Right. And actually, at the moment, probably more effective than Justin yeah. Verlander. Yeah. I wouldn't want to use starter versus reliever and look so different physically. But yeah, I guess that is. Right. Uh, that is a prescient example. Now, that's actually a thing with, now with Verlander, to some degree, is a type of pitcher on the, well, I guess by one definition, the opposite end of the spectrum, right? In the sense that he has had a great fastball in the past, um, and he doesn't have that great fastball anymore. Do you have a sense, and perhaps objectively or just anecdotally, do you have a sense that for this sort of pitcher, it takes them, it takes them longer to adjust to having, uh, diminished velocity on the fastball yeah i remember reading an article about the the mets what was it the generation k with uh paul wilson and pulsiver and isringhausen and paul wilson was coming back with the rays uh this is back when uh when i was <laughs> big Rays fan because they're the only team in tampa uh and he was explaining like i used to throw an idea which you you could read this anywhere but for some reason i remember this specific story that it was i could throw the ball past guys then i had shoulder surgery now i throw 88 to 91 I had to learn how to pitch, and now I'm a more effective pitcher than if I never got hurt because I learned to do these things that you still have to do when you throw 95 or still, or maybe when you throw 92, or you have to have some sense of them. And because I threw so hard, I never had to learn them. Now, obviously, Verlander's a guy that didn't have a changeup and then learned a changeup, and it became one of his best pitches uh, or one of the better changeups in the league. So it's not like he's a guy that just throws the ball past everyone and hasn't sort of learned anything and has no finesse and has made no adjustments. Uh, but also his style of pitching is geared toward I can blow the ball past people and I have enough command to put it in the general area that I want it to, you know, reasonably, uh, enough throughout the game. So it was like sort of the thing that he learned was make some small adjustments around this strategy that's based on how good I am, uh, just sort of physically. And now when that regresses, I think there's a small part of that sort of Paul Wilson thing where it's like, I have to learn to make an adjustment throwing, you know, 93 with command or throwing 95 with no command as opposed to before it was, my style was I throw 97 with a knockout curveball and a changeup and I have command, which is a, you know, a different strategic move. So yeah, I think there is that adjustment, but he's not exactly the furthest end of the spectrum as like the Joel Zumaya is throwing 90 and now he has to learn how to hit a spot. Like that's, that's the extreme version. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. Let's, let's get to the world of uh, prospecting. Uh, you, of course, you, you released, uh, this week your first, you, you, you didn't call it, you don't call it like a top 10 or top 30 list. You, you refer to it as evaluating the prospects. Did you, how did you settle on that and how is that title sort of illustrative of your intentions? The way I settled on that title is I didn't put a title on it and Dave Cameron wrote evaluating the prospects. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. Um, well, so he actually said if you, you know, if there's a, I think I submitted it with just like top prospects, Texas Rangers. Because, like, I'm not going to do a specific number for every team, so you can't put a number on it. And I thought, like, oh, top prospects. Instead of saying top ten prospects, I'll just say top prospects. Uh, but then that obviously is kind of dry. Uh, and I think when you write 5,000 words, you'd want to put more than just top prospects because that could also be, you know, a slideshow and bleacher report. So so I I, I can explain the uh, the sort of approach and whatnot, but I don't <laughs> – I'm not sure the uh, title is the entry report because it might change for the next list for all I know. Oh, yeah. Well, that'll be we'll, – we'll, we'll watch out for that. Well, Wait, what do you – all right. So from reading it, what do you think it should be given what my approach was, which obviously anybody can read it and sort of see what it was. You don't need to be telling you. Well, so here's here's actually a thing is that uh, – I don't know if you're familiar with the name Chris St. John. He writes for Beyond the Box Score. And I'm, he he's done an interesting thing, which is essentially to produce uh, consensus – Prospectless, right? So he'll look. I think he, he takes from like ten or fifteen different sources, and will produce a consensus top whatever 
list for uh, for each organization. And what his approach his approach is obviously different than yours, um, but the product is the same in that he had the way when he does this, there are varying numbers of prospects. So a less deep, uh, um, a less robust organization or system will produce fewer consensus top prospects, right? Because, uh, or maybe, or maybe if there's somehow, there's like a definite cutoff line, right? You're like, well, after, you know, number 21, there's just not really a lot, a lot there. And so that you'll find fewer names. And so there are varying names. So I, I think if you just want to say, for one, you could say, what did the Rangers list have on it? Like the top, was it, who, who were the 20, fifth? 27. 27, the, right? Yeah. You could say the top 27 prospects, the Rangers, and then if it's different number next time to do that, I think it's fine. Yeah, I, I guess I guess part of that is the uh, the you know ten ten crazy things or whatever doesn't want you to know. Like, <laughs> oh, the like lists, yes, yeah. Well, I, feel- I, I have mixed uh, mixed emotions like that. The problem is right. You could say like, um, I mean, having um ha- having now some not not the most, but having some exposure to the the relationship between headlines and page views. There is some, and the, that doesn't regardless of the title though. That doesn't. Um, that doesn't affect the quality of the, the document that follows it. Uh, I yeah, think... no, I, I would agree. I, like, like you're saying, that that may be the most descriptive thing to just mm-hmm. say the top 27 prospects. Maybe that gets across the you know the depth of, uh, of what's being written and what it's about and all that, and also m- maybe a little more eye catching than uh, what we used. I, I know, I know, Dave and I were both non-committal when when that was posted about yeah. the title. So for me, it's fine. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't. You know, you can do like yeah, like the top 25 beach babes. Of 2014 or whatever. I mean, and here's, and here's some Rangers prospects <laughs> along with it. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, I, um, I would, I probably have clicked on that, and I've felt shame in the pit of my stomach, but I still went through. But of course, yeah, it's just pictures of beach babes. But but if someone clicks on the top 27 prospects for the Texas Rangers, they they have the pleasure, I guess, of seeing a ranked list. But then they have a second pleasure where they're like, oh, this isn't just like. This isn't the equivalent of like potato chips or devil dogs in terms of, um, you know, baseball analysis. This is, this is uh, both entertaining. I mean, I'm complimenting you here and I don't want to be doing that, but it's, it, it's, <laughs> Stop it immediately. well, no, I'm saying it because I think it's a fact, but it, I don't, it's, I don't want to be, because I know who you are. I don't want to be saying it to you. Just generally there's, there's entertainment there and, uh, it's also substantive, you know, so I don't think that the, I don't think the title undermines the, um, this sort of authority of the list. Yeah, and I think the other part was why we settled on something that could, uh, uh, you know, be more rep- basically could have the same title for every team to imply that it's this ongoing series. Yeah. But but I don't think top twenty two of the Brewers and top twenty seven of the Rangers implies it's not still similar, you know, from yeah. the same guy, the same style. Yeah. Listen, I want to I want to address the Rangers list in part, or at least I want to address how to talk about the Rangers list because I you don't want to talk about the title anymore. No, no, I don't. No, we're done with that. Okay, I'm, moving on. Yeah, I want to talk about it in a second. Also, at least, to, at least, as far as how it might inform, how it might help us create something, because you're going to be on every week. We're going to t- have a discussion every week, and I, I think we should develop sort of a, a template or methodology for discussing these lists, rather than just being like, "So, Joey Gallo's number one, huh? Pretty good. Hey, who's number two? Oh, is he good? Oh, he's a little bit not as good as Joey Gallo, but better than who's number three." But still good, I should point but out. Still, also. Yeah, right. So I don't want to do that every week. But first I want to, I want to say, um, that I found 
Now, there's something a person could do. Now, I used to teach, um, not, not probably not very well, but one thing I did well when I was, I used to teach composition in college, was to say like, the more, um, the more humble you, when you were writing, the, the more humility you uh, presented up front, you know, sort of the beginning of an essay or whatever, the the, the larger the chance of your reader trusting you, right? Because everyone's a dummy, but trusting the people who know that they're dummies, or you're, the people who know that they're dummies are a lot more trustworthy because they're admitting it. Um, and you wrote a piece, uh, you wrote a piece uh, for Instagraphs last week called "What Scouting Can Tell Us," and without exaggerating too much, um, one of the points you make in that is that uh, is that it can't tell us it can't tell us that much. It can still tell us things, but yeah, it I, it, it, there are limits. There are total limit, totally limits to it. But yeah, and I think going back to the the Verlander Yohara false dichotomy that I made, I think it's almost it's almost predictable the things that it can't tell us, like. The, we don't know who the next, uh, Mike Fires is gonna be, or if Mike Fires is gonna be this version of Mike Fires in three weeks or whatever. Uh, but we know that the undersized, uh, doesn't throw hard starting pitcher that is just good enough and maybe learns a trick in double A, le- learns a neat trick. Um, that's the guy that's always gonna be underrated until he does it. Uh, and, you know, sometimes there's a guy without a lot of power, uh, that, you know, say like a Dustin Pejori type, doesn't look like big league second baseman, his power comes from the fact that he swings really hard, and so someone's like, well, you know, if he doesn't, he can't make contact doing that, and so they're gonna underrate that guy all the way through, and he's not a huge runner, so you can't say he's gonna steal bases and be a great defender. Like, those are the kinds of guys that it seems like, and then going back to the Tom Glavin thing, like the soft tossing lefty with great command, like those are the kinds of guys that scouting doesn't do well, uh, but what I was saying was, you would think it would do well predicting, like, the on the OFP 2080 scale, like, oh, the 80s, at least we'll know the 80s. And I'll go back and look at, like, some of my draft lists, and it'll be like, right after the last year's draft, like, 12 of the 30 first-round picks were in my list. Uh, and that's, like, high schoolers that haven't done showcase season that you've kind of barely seen, you sort of heard about. I'm like, oh, like, half the first round is decided before we even go through the evaluation period. Like, that seems kind of, like, not fun. And then you go look at, like, Cliff Lee. Like, he was one of the 8 to 12 aces in baseball for a while and could have been given away two years before he became the ace. And, like, Mike Trout was, what was he, 25th overall or whatever. You hear stories about three or four teams had him in the top ten on their board or one team had him number one, but they didn't get him. And they can't trade picks, so we don't know if that was true or not. But Baseball America was, like, sort of the, uh, you know, sort of the... Uh, the place you go to at this point after he got drafted, and they're like, oh yeah, he's number three in the system behind Peter Borges, and that's, he was the first round pick that had like a 900 OPS on rookie ball, like he was doing Mike Trout things, looking like Mike Trout, everyone's like, wow, this guy's better than we thought he was, it was scouting, it was stats, it was everything, it wasn't that great of a system, and he was still the second best outfield prospect in that system, so it's like even the traditional scouting guy that's the guy buying baseball that went in the first round, we didn't even really know until, what, the year before when he was, him and Bryce Harper were one and two, but even then people were arguing between him and Harper and Matt Moore as the top three prospects in baseball. Like, people still couldn't imagine him as that guy for whatever reason, and Cliff Lee is that sort of soft-tossing command-type guy that we're going to miss every time, but him, like Lavin, happened to be one of those 80s, one of those number one guys, Uh, so that was another example of the the finesse profile that scouting sort of misses, there is an extreme version of that where that guy is better than almost everybody else and often don't see that coming either. So, I, yeah, I guess that's sort of, I don't know if you planned that as a segue, but they, they merged well together. Right. Well, and, well, and there's also the case of the, hey, it's my dog. The, uh, hey, oh, oh, uh, oh, there's also the case that just happened today is the, the, uh, the Red Sox signed Rusny, I think Rusny Castillo, is that how you say it? 
As far as I know, yes. Yeah. Uh, Rizzi Castillo has the, has had in some cases the fourth outfielder label, which has been something that has been applied to a number of players who ultimately have acquitted themselves pretty nicely, uh, at the major league levels because it's like, well, he's not a true center fielder, but that doesn't mean he's not going to be an above average defender in a corner and then also provide offense, uh, through alternate means than hitting home runs. Yeah, exactly. And there's, um, I would say less examples, but there's still examples of the, uh, if you want to go like a little further down the 2080 scale of the, you know, the fourth outfielder fringe everyday guy turning into the, you know, above average everyday guy. Uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, that article Dave references Shane Victorino, who I remember, uh, stat heads were kind of pushing when he was a fourth outfielder and people thought he'd reached a ceiling as like a rule five guy or a, you know, undervalued trade guy. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, been whatever he was. That was, you know, sort of the example of the fourth outfielder that turned into the above average everyday guy. So yeah, that's obviously possible as well. Okay. So with regard to this Rangers list, right? You released it the last week. And, uh, as I say, uh, uh, there are considerable merits to it. What's the way, what's the way we should talk about these, do you think? Um, I mean, again, we could be like number one, number two. Do you think it's, do you think it's a question of maybe isolating some interesting cases? Should I just ask you, who do you want to talk about? What should be the strategy? Because there's a lot of content here. Yes. Um, but I think there's also, there's a, there's a, um, maybe a desire to, for each organization to sort of, um, extract a, a theme from the organization. But that's, that's a bit of a, of, of an artificial, that's a construct, right? I mean, not, not every organization is going to have, like an overarching theme to all the players. Sometimes they've just tried to find the best players, and here they are in order, <laughs> you know. Yeah, and actually the funny thing is if you were to say that before I started the series and go, is there a team that has like an easily recognizable theme in their minor leagues? One of the teams I would mention is the Rangers are notorious for taking sort of athletic, up-the-middle, swing-and-miss guys that are like, eh, well... Like Lewis Brinson, like he plays center field really well. He's really fast, does everything well. He's got power, but he's good. he's like you know maybe a twenty hitter for some people. Is he can hit enough? And then you also have the the Joey Gallo, like you know big donkey that could hit a bunch of home runs. But is he is he Jeremy Burnett? Can he make it work? Or is he you know Billy Ashley? And he's gonna get stuck in Triple A. Right, and the uh, fact that uh, Billy Ashley's identity is not entirely familiar to me is probably illustrative of how successful Billy Ashley was. I actually I guess I could have said any name. It would just be a stand-in for a guy you've never heard of. Right. Uh, yeah, actually, the example I used in the article was the uh, scouts seem to say that there is the Dallas McPherson, which is flame out, nothing happens. Uh, Russell Brannion, which is doesn't meet his promise, but is like a solid player that's sort of an everyday guy for a few years. And then Adam Dunn, and those are like the what you know whatever he is looks like Toby Keith hits baseballs a long way. Uh, those are like the three like the small, medium, large of the left-handed hitting huge power. Will he make enough contact guy that performs in Double A, which is now what Gallo's doing. Right. Right. So uh, I, I would say for talking about the list, though, uh, almost all of these guys, if I have like uh, an in-depth thought, I feel like a lot of times when these lists happen, it's sort of a format, like, oh, it has to be 250 words or whatever. And so you, the writer may have extra thoughts about how this guy fits, you know, in the, you know, like the example I just gave, those are the three versions of that kind of guy. That probably doesn't get in a report if you have sort of a 300 words to fill. Right. 
Whereas I have unlimited space, or as far as I know, I haven't come up against that limit yet. So I basically said everything I have that I think is like wouldn't fit traditionally in a report, which you don't have for every player, you have for a handful of them. So I feel like the best way to tackle it, since I don't have necessarily more thoughts that I haven't shared yet, and you can read the article if you want to know, would be guys that you think are interesting or that in sort of the context of prospects in baseball or talking about a Mike Fires type, is there a guy like that that I mentioned at the bottom of the list or... I think because another thing that I like about the sort of fan graphs like reading community is they're not so far in the scouting world that they're just going to sort of yawn and be like, well, yeah, the, this, the 20, top 20 guys on your list, 18 of them were on the list last year and two of them went the first, second, second round. So this isn't surprising. They're a little more curious about like, like I got a lot of comments about Nick Williams as a, how do you explain a guy is known for being able to, con- to barrel up anything, but he's striking out almost 30% of the time and he's 20 in double A, like, he, he's not able to cut down on that. Like, how they, we don't know a player like that. Explain to me what this means. And I, I was like, I thought I explained it well enough, but it's basically there's not an easy comparison for that, or you can't think of an example of a guy like that. So it's a little hard to understand. Whereas Joey Gallo, it's like, oh, he swings hard and hits the ball a long way. Who knows if it'll work? Everybody kind of gets that. Right, 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 right. Well, how so about I feel like there's like a standout, and for whatever reason, uh, to, uh, you know, the, the reader types, which I well, feel like you're a rough proxy for. Yeah, decent proxy. There's a, I mean, there's a player in Ryan Rua, I suppose, who's interesting to me. Uh, he is out on the, the fringes a little bit, uh, but he hit a lot of home runs last year and then has also hit uh, a fair number this year, I think 18, something like that. And he hadn't really been that player before. Uh, so I guess the question is, I mean, if you, when you see a power, I mean, one question is, when you see a power spike like that, kind of apropos of nothing, at least, at least, uh, apropos of nothing statistically, perhaps there is something physically there that was possibility. But uh, uh, a player who is capable of hitting 30 home runs, uh, you know, not at a level that is not either the California League or the Pacific Coast League, which tend to be the most offensive friendly, and who's also capable of playing second base or third base, that's compelling, right? Yes. So one of the interesting things about Rue, I think I referenced this in the report, was I talked to a scout that said, went through, saw double-A Frisco early, wrote him up as an NP, not prospect. You know, thought it was just some Phil guy that, you know, was just sort of running around out there. Then I saw him, I think it was two months later, and put him in as a three, which means like emergency call-up on the 2-8 scale. And then saw him again like three weeks ago and uh, and put him in as a four. And I was like, has there been a guy that you've gone from an NP to a four in season before? He's like, no, I don't think I've ever raised a guy more than one grade in season. And it was sort of a microcosm of his career. He's, uh, I don't know where he was drafted, but it was something very low. It was like a ten, fifteen thousand dollar bonus, sort of the anonymous fill the system guy. And then as you mentioned, last year split between, uh, A ball and double A, he had 32 home runs. And this year between double A AA and triple A, he's at 18. Uh, and he went from striking out a good bit earlier. Oh wait, never mind. He didn't strike out a lot. Anyway, but he, he went from sort of an anonymous guy to all of a sudden at the upper levels. Again, this is the sort of guy that scouting tends to miss is the guy that doesn't get a huge bonus, but there's guys in the big leagues that look like him. They one of the scouts comped him to Steve Pierce. It's like, this guy exists, but the sort of the Tom Glavin problem is, that, well, if you think every guy that looks kind of like Steve Pierce is going to turn into Steve Pierce, <laughs> you're going to have 99 broken Steve Pierce dolls laying around your floor. Well, especially since Steve Pierce didn't resemble Steve Pierce till this year. I mean, really. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so this is another one of those guys where it was, was thought of as an afterstatement or afterthought and then 
had a, had a big season, and you're like, all right, let's see if he can do it at the upper levels. And now he's doing it at the upper levels, and now you're like, all right, I guess this is a big leaguer now. Like, that's the guy that's going to have to prove it at every level. And most guys that have that one season, you're like, oh, it's probably a stiff guy that can't, you know, make enough uh, contact for it to matter. And Rua, uh, the guy that I talked to uh, about him that did the, the, the NP to three to four, is like, he's fringy at third. He can play third if you need him to. He's probably better in left field, but since he doesn't have enough bat to be an everyday guy anyway, he fits perfectly as a right-handed hitter, as a platoon guy that can play third, can play first, can play right, can play left. He's got a, he got an average arm. Uh, that that that's uh, that's a thing that exists. That kind of player exists, and they typically are not big prospect guys that you've heard of. So it he he went from being a guy that seemed like an afterthought to a couple good seasons. Like oh no, now he instead of you know the default being he's an org guy no one cares about. It's like oh no, he looks like that Steve Pierce guy. Every team's got a guy like that. They come out of nowhere, and that guy just emerged. And so then it sort of like turned the other way because he's in Triple A. Right, right. And well, yeah. I mean, he seems like especially since the. Uh, uh, the Rangers are not having a great season. Uh, hence is why they're first in the series, which is in reverse order of record. Uh, he does it seem like a, a sort of person who can make a September appearance. Uh, I would think it's possible. Uh, I think he's done enough. It, usually, that comes down to sort of what they're tr- trying to accomplish in September. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll so if they're one of those teams that kind of calls it everyone on the forty man, then I think he would. But I would, I would imagine they'll have a specific idea of what they want to do because I'm betting they think they're going to be in the playoffs next year. So. And but also Ryan Rua could save him a couple million dollars if they want to have him instead of you know going and getting that Steve Pierce guy and paying three million dollars. You could you know cut some corners and count on that guy being your your, your corner youth next year. No, uh, tell me about now. I think uh, Corey Nebel. Corey Nebel is a player in the Rangers. Ken Neville. No, it's not. It is Ken Neville. Oh well, that's okay. Well, now I know that. But uh, Corey Knebel was where did he, he was eleventh uh, among among the Rangers prospects. Um, and I I don't know. To what degree this exposes your biases or your thoughts about it? Uh, Knebel is a is a relief pitcher, and uh, we know at least generally at the major leagues in terms of wins above replacement at least relief pitchers, you know, mostly as a function of the number of innings they're likely to throw have a have a ceiling, and that ceiling you know is I mean Craig Kimbrell whatever Craig Kimbrell's done over the last couple of years is basically the ceiling. It's you know three wins probably. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, uh, and then of course the floor is zero, or I mean, if they fall apart, it's less than zero. Um, but usually they're not going to record many, you know, many fewer wins than zero because if a reliever is bad, if he has some blow up innings, then he's gone. Well, and also the floor is technically above uh, the floor because it's littered with those Steve Pierce dolls, so it's you get like a little bit of a cushion. Yeah. Right. Okay. Very good. So the uh, so how do you how do you handle a player like uh, Knebel? Knebel? Did we say? Knebel. Knebel. Should I put pronunciation guides on here with this with the tool grades? Yeah, well, a guy like that maybe. He but anyways, I mean he seems to be like a best case scenario so far as relievers go. He was a uh, well, of course he was involved in the trade um, uh, between uh, Detroit and Detroit and Texas, but he was drafted in the the sandwich round, which is high up. Um, and uh, you know, he so he was valued out of coming out of college. But you know, how does that I guess how does the relief role and his ability within the relief role? How does that sort of how do you uh, synthesize all that in terms of um, you know projecting something for the future? Well, and once again, the uh, I, I wrote in the uh, the sort of beginning of the player comment for him. Uh, well, he's a relief only guy with some effort to his delivery. 
we can only get so excited about this. He's like a, I don't know, 6'2 righty, something like that. Like, there's a limit. Obviously, you know, Craig Kimbrell looks like that, so it's not like things aren't possible. But ideally, if scouting-wise, you're going to use sort of the scouting rubric to get excited about a guy, you'd like to be like, oh, well, he could start, and he's 6'6". Like, you you don't have, like, all those boxes ticked. But, like you said, he went in the supplemental round. He's been up to 98. He's got a plus curveball. He's got closer stuff. Uh, he makes his delivery work just enough that he could command it enough to be a closer. If it doesn't come around quite enough, then you can be sort of the, I don't know, the example of the guy that doesn't have enough command to be a closer, but he has the stuff, like Jose Veras maybe. If he if, if he could throw where he wanted to, he's probably a legit closer, but he can't, so he's more of a setup guy or closer on a bad team sort of dude. Uh, so that's sort of the range of possibilities. He's in AAA. He's already had some big league time. Like, he's basically there, and you're just trying to figure out what's going to happen. But at the beginning, I said, like, we can't get so too excited because it's a right, you know, right-handed reliever with effort. And then the night I was finishing the report, he got shut down for the year with, I believe it was an elbow issue that, uh, it was, a, I believe it was a strained UCL, so it won't be Tommy John, but in the past when something notable happens to the UCL of any kind, it usually leads to Tommy John within, I don't know, like five years or so. So it's, he's not gonna be out for the year, he'll be ready for the beginning of next year, it could be nothing, but it was sort of indicative of what you're supposed to do with this guy, which is use them as quickly as you can because they might blow up at any point. Right. Uh, now we've already been talking for over 35 minutes, so you've done a good job. Uh, uh, one last player about whom I'd like to ask you is uh, Nomar Mazara. Um, it's Mazara? No, I'm kidding. Uh, no, is it Mazara? <laughs> yeah, don't do that. The, it's Nomar Mazara. Yeah. It's what you yeah. Uh, Nomar Mazara is 19 currently and playing at Double A. He's also notable insofar as he received a giant bonus. It, I, I don't know. Is that still the biggest? Was it the it biggest? Is- it is the biggest and will continue to be because bonuses will only go down, and I don't think anyone's even got within a million dollars of what he got since he got it. Right. So it's probably going to be the record for all time. Right. So he just got, he got uh, just under $5 million, um as a, what, 15 or 16-year-old technically, I guess, out of uh, out of the Dominican. Dominican. Yep. Uh, that's a lot of money. You have to be feel pretty confident that that is going to materialize into a major league player or that the probability is high that he would materialize into a major league player and a good one. Uh, but is that going to happen? He's hitting, I guess he hits home runs and he's young. So that's a good sign. Yeah. The funny thing is he was, uh, much like I pointed out that the Rangers are known for taking sort of swing and miss athletes with a really high upside and assuming they can fix them, which they have a better track record of doing than most teams, but that doesn't mean they're doing an amazing job. So he, uh, was one of those guys that is, I think he's what, six three and he had a very complicated swing with a lot of moving parts. And so when you would watch him like take batting practice, you'd see like, oh, he can hit the ball a mile. He's pretty athletic. He's a big dude. He could be a monster. But I don't like that at 16, he's already got all of these essentially bad habits, all these sort of like big leg kick you can't time, hands are moving all over the place. Um, and so, of course, a team like the Rangers, they'd be like, oh, we can fix that. This guy's way better than everyone else. And other teams may be low on him because it kind of looks a little funky, but we can smooth that out. We've done it before. We've got the right development guys to do it. And our philosophy is go get the high-end guy. Uh, so then he came uh, over to America and did okay last year, but not that great, and still hadn't quite sort of found his timing. But he was also, I believe, it was 18 in low A. So it's not like if you don't do well, your you know your career's done. Like Justin Upton signed, went to low A, wasn't good, and then took off the next year and became Justin Upton, which is kind of what happened to Mazzara this year. He figured out his timing, he reduced his leg kick, the hand stuff kind of calmed down a little bit. And now he's hitting like crazy. And like you said, he's 19 in double A, which if you look at the list of guys that are there's a handful of like 17 and 18 year olds that'll go fill in at double A that are like shortstops that can't hit that aren't really prospects. But it's just like we need a guy that can catch the ball, go put him in. 
if you look at the list of guys that are like legitimately in double A and playing every day and aren't all glove, no bat kind of guys, it's a really good list. There's, I mean, there's some sort of really good prospect flameouts, uh, but if you look at like all of the sort of traditional high pick, shot through the minors, became a stud kind of guys, a lot of them did that. Right. Um, yeah. That's encouraging. It's encouraging for him, I guess, for Texas. And you've got the right field tools. There's a couple other guys in the system that have similar backgrounds to him that get huge bonuses that are either still physically awkward or kind of don't have focus on the field or still just kind of kids, basically, which, I mean, they're 18 or 16 or 17 or whatever. They kind of should be. He seems a little more polished uh, and has sort of the, you know, the right markings of being a work ethic guy and scouts seem to like him and the Rangers are aggressively promoting him because they think everything's in line. Like everything's there to think that he's going to hit his potential. And he's been sort of cutting down his strikeouts, increasing his walks, uh, you know, making more contact, getting to some of his power in games. And he's got a chance to hit 30 home runs if everything comes together. Right. And he, I, I think has, uh, from scouts, even though he's a year younger, uh, and was sort of looked at as a bit of a mess last year. Uh, Joey Gallo was looked at as a mess last year. And there's still some questions just because his game is more of a swing as hard as you can type, whereas Mazzara is more of a, a repeatable uh, type. So I actually gave him, I believe, a slight edge on the head. I believe I gave Mazzara a future 50 and gave Gallo 45. So this guy was kind of a mess and would have been, I don't know, 17th on the list last year, and then three or 400 at-bats later, and now he's fifth on the list and is technically uh, maybe a safer version of what Joey Gallo is, who is like, you know, the big... Uh, you know, the guy getting all the buzz. So it's, I mean, that's the example of what can happen when a guy is that talented and gets that much money and it all comes together. At the same time, there's a guy named Jairo Barris that got, I believe, through four and a half million. And he's, uh, not like terrible or a bad guy or anything, but he's what you think, you know, most of these 18 year olds would turn into where there's just all kinds of problems and striking out a lot and it's 6'5, 180. I got a body count to a baby deer from a scout. Like it's, it's things can still work out, but you got a ways to go. And Mazzara seems to have taken to it very quickly, and that's sort of the best case scenario. So they've obviously got to be encouraged by that, and and some of it comes from their development guys fixing uh, sort of the offensive approach. Yeah, hardly any really uh, baby deer have ever really made it in major leagues, made an impact. I mean, that could that could be a not graphs article, right? How, how many players have uh, resembled a baby deer and have been a, any actual baby deer snuck onto a field at any point? Yeah, actually, I was thinking of doing a post that also has to do with anatomy today. Is um, uh, a full list of people who can count the number of Red Sox outfielders on one hand <laughs> because they have a bunch. I think I found someone who had uh, eight it's figures. Eight oh, figures say Antonio Alfonseca, I don't think he'd do it. No, he's, he could not. No, but I did find someone who could. Although I will say, uh, as I'm sure uh, it has nothing to do with it, but there is something that might be striking to people about seeing a, a hand with eight fingers, maybe unpleasant, even though this person is obviously uh, – could it, be it reminds me of a joke told when the Marlins moved into their new stadium. I said they should uh, have a concession item called Antonio Alfonseca's uh, Chicken Fingers, mm-hmm. where it's it's six fingers. It's yeah. it's a little fatter than you'd like it to be, and ultimately disappointing. <laughs> I might, I may or may not have cut that out, Kylie. <laughs> I don't think that was uh, maybe I mean, it's a, it's not libelous. Anyway. I don't it's, know. It's hard to say. I yeah. we'll get we'll figure it out. But listen, you've totally fulfilled your obligation, if you can believe it. I, uh, I'm i often not told that, so it's a real pick-me-up for me. Yeah, yeah. Well, just just for this week. So uh, you have uh, there's room to disappoint in the future. That's the way I like it. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Uh, thank you, Kyla McDaniel. 
Yes, indeedy. I will see you next week. Yeah, stick around for a second uh, after we're done, but for the purposes of this podcast, thank you, Kylie. It has been Kylie McDaniel, what, the lead prospect writer, the prospect editor of Fangraphs? Uh, what are you going by? I'm whatever you want to call me. All right, we'll call you lead for right now, lead prospect writer of Fangraphs. I'm Carson it's, Stooley. It's, it's, been, actually, it's actually pronounced lead. This has been Fangraphs Audio.